Welcome to the New Wave Entrepreneur, where we dive headfirst into Web 3.0, personal sovereignty, spirituality, and psychology. These conversations are unfiltered access to brilliant minds and actionable advice that will prepare you for the rapidly changing world. So, jump in. The water is warm and the tide is rising. Welcome back, my friends, to another incredible episode of the New Wave Entrepreneur Podcast. Today, I am so elated to introduce you to my friend, Caduce Philippe. Caduce has a storied history as one of the the pioneers of the music video entertainment era. He was actually one of the first VJs. He was the first, he was actually the the VJ to replace Carson Daly on TRL, Total Total Request Live, which was, you know, one of the, the... most impactful shows, certainly of my adolescence, and one of the the shows that really set the foundation at the crossroads between the old world media of the conglomerates and the new world media of the internet. And he has so many fascinating stories from that time period, from interviewing the biggest names in the world, from Beyonce and Kanye and Britney, to seeing how the industry shaped and transitioned through his different work at, at different outlets. He worked at a, as an A&R at MySpace for a while. Can you remember, remember MySpace? He has so much uh, uh, valued experience and perspective on this changing landscape. And what's so great about him is he really understands how to shape and and curate your voice so that it's both true, so that it resonates, and so that it brings the right type of people uh, to your work. And so today's conversation is all about that. It's how media is changing, what it means for us as a culture, and how to remain authentic to your work and your word as you grow your, as you grow your visibility and your impact and and um, everything that you want to share. So I am elated to share this episode with you. It was a lot of fun. We went quite deep and there are even some Q&A from my clients at the end, which I think you'll really like to hear as well. So kick back and get ready to ride the wave. What's up, man? How you doing? Doing good. Feeling great. I had a nap this afternoon. Got me in a good Naps day. Are so underrated Truly. as adults. Truly. As kids, we underrate them. We we kick and scream to not nap, and then we kick and scream to nap. As kids <laughs> totally. or as adults. Totally. Yeah, yeah. We need more sleep as we get more age. It makes sense in some ways. We have more responsibilities though. Yeah, I mean, I think also just it's kind of like the the the, the brain takes more power to run. We just need a little bit more, you know, of a reprieve sometimes. Totally, totally. By the way, I love how sleek your your headphone situation is versus mine. I look like I have a Mac truck on my head compared to you. You look like a DJ, you know? That's okay. You're on mute now. See, now you're on mute. See, you messed it up. There you what go. What the hell is going on? It's okay. Um, so it's it's really it's so 2021 you know like this whole zoom thing it's like am i on mute oh my god <laughs> yeah i've i've done more zoom in the past 18 months than i ever wanted to do and my only regret is that i didn't invest in them right before they ipo'd in t- the beginning of 2020 because that would have mm. been a great idea mm-hmm. you know? yeah zoom really won the pandemic 
they won the pandemic. And, you know, if you think about it too, it's not a new concept. I mean, Skype has been around for almost 20 years at this point and they couldn't get it right. It's like yep. someone you just, they just put fumble in the ball for 20 years. It's like, <laughs> guys, you've literally had this since the late nineties or something. It's like, you put it, so you could have figured it out. Yeah. Their, their user journey is, has been crunchy. It's been crunchy. I've experienced Skype. Anything like that Microsoft it, it's got touches. Way too many hoops to jump through. Zoom is pretty, pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, anything that, yeah. Anything that Microsoft touches turns to wood. <laughs> and you know what? It's interesting too. And we'll kind of like, we'll, we'll get into the, like the conversation at, at hand as, as we, um as we let people in and, you know, I want to give people a few minutes to come on, but I was writing, a, writing an article today. It was in the form of a tweet storm on web 3.0 and what mm. that means. Mm. And I was thinking about the four big companies that have shaped our perspective of uh, the internet moving into where we are now. And it's the acronym GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. Now you might want to even make that acronym GAFA, which is like Windows perhaps, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I thought to myself, although Windows and Microsoft has been pivotal in the evolution of technology and the internet to where it is now, they really haven't played as much of a role in Web 2.0, which is like the social media age of the internet, even though they're a big piece of why we're here. And it's interesting that they that they that they didn't sure. really do that. Totally, they must feel like Damon Dash. <laughs> oh, don't, don't don't play our guy like that. <laughs> don't play our guy. Yeah, it's a it's a, it's a hard fall. But actually, but actually, you know, they're still. It's like they're they're um they're they've always been more enterprise, you know. But they never quite. It's like it's like they were always five years late. They were always, you know, it's like oh, Google did Google. We'll do Bing. Oh, Microsoft. You know, Apple did the iPad. We'll do the Surface. It's like guys. Come up with something original. <laughs> and they're acquiring some interesting things that are original. Well, and you know, that was Facebook's model. Facebook's model was acquire, let us acquire you or we'll kill you. Um, <laughs> and that and that was actually a pretty good model for them. But now it's starting to backfire. Well, Facebook files just came out. Wall Street Journal. You read those? I je- well, yes, I read. Yes, yes. Do you want to t- tell us what that tell us? Tell us about that. Well, we're breaking up. I don't know what that's about. Can you hear me now? That's what happens when you start talking badly about Facebook. Your internet all of a sudden cuts out. They know what. Tell us. I'll get a tap on the door. It's it's going to be that tap on the door, like in the Matrix. Neo's (laughs) like, "What? They're coming for me now." Yeah, the Facebook files is really revealing. I mean, the fact is, the Facebook has known the detrimental issues on our psychology, especially with young people, for quite some time. And I think to give them some grace, we can think about how you would probably react. Like, let's say your product was having some detrimental effects on people that you didn't really intend. Well, would you go out and tell the press right away? Eh, probably not. You'd probably try to clean it up behind the scenes. But how long would you do that? You know, and like, what measures would you take? Would you communicate the detriments at some point if you didn't feel like you were able to turn the tides? You know, so there's a lot of like ethical stuff we can look at now with Facebook. It's on the table now. Yeah, I mean, there's that. And there's also, um, there's, I mean, from everything from Cambridge Analytica, you know, mm-hmm. to um, the the known behavioral psychology manipulation within the company, yeah. which many ex, uh, ex-VPs have spoken about at large. Sure. Social Dilemma is a great Social Dilemma is a great one. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, it comes to a point where you say all of this might not be intentional, but you're also intentionally not stopping it. Mm-hmm. Where's the fine line between we never wanted this to happen versus okay, but now that you know, when are you responsible? Exactly. You know exactly. And then and then it comes into the the personality behind it as well. You know, it's hard to sort of 
extricate the founder from the equation and just look at what's going on without thinking Zuckerberg. Like, would I trust Zuckerberg with anything? No. You kidding me? That guy weasels around in anything he's in. He screams lack of integrity. (laughs) Well, but what's so interesting, and I think it's so hilarious, is I think that we did that movie, The Social Network, too early. That movie was made when he was still seen as like this like iconoclastic, like, uh, you know, leader that was like for for the people in some way. Yeah. But yeah. now it's completely a different perspective on him. They wouldn't get Timberlake in it now. They couldn't get Timberlake. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. He'd be a they pass on that. No, yeah. he'd be a pass. Uh, and that movie was what, maybe 2014, something like that. So yeah, it's interesting how, how that how that how that has changed. And I think that you know, with with the advent of Web 2.0, moving to 3.0, I think a lot of the, the the companies that we saw as very benevolent, like almost like these gentle giants, we don't see them like that anymore. Google, we used to think, wow, I get all this for free. Thanks, Google. And now it's like, oh fuck, what's going on with our internet? We we start up? talking about things that are not controversial. Let's <laughs> just see how our internet works then. All right. Well, let's start it up. Um, We'll get started, and I'm sure it will go perfectly fine. We you know, can't we're help do... it to be controversial, though. We can't it's help like, it to be controversial. We we have no fucking mask on when we talk. There is there's no censorship involved. You and I. There's also nothing else to say except current events these days, and that is by nature controversial. By the way, when I say no masks, it's nothing to do with the the, the whole COVID thing. I just realized. It, it, you know, it's like talking and cancel culture. You literally need to monitor every single word you say and give context for every little thing you say. Like, yes. no, I, I was not d- doing a sideways commentary about COVID-19 just now. I just meant muzzled. That That's what I meant. <laughs> but I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. I, I mean, you're actually the first live recording we've done of this whole new series, which we're calling The New Wave Entrepreneur. So welcome to you, sir. Nice. Nice. Feels good. I love live conversations. For me, it's like the way to pin yourself to being authentic. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. And you're always like, you're always like trying to get me to come on some live thing. And then you're like turning it into a show. And I'm just like, I look, I'm in my house right now. I didn't know that we were doing a show, you know, and you're like asking me these very pointed, you know, intimate questions. I'm like, dude, I thought we were just going to have a, like a one-on-one chat. So now I get to reverse on you. Cause I don't think I told you that we were going to have people in the audience here. No, you um, did. You did. Oh, did I? Okay. Yeah. You're, okay. you're a way more ethical broadcaster than I am. Yeah. You always do that type of shit, but <laughs> Uh, we're happy to have you. And, um, you know, as I was researching you uh, uh, before the call, um, I learned something interesting about you, Benjamin. <laughs> uh, yeah, yes, that's the first uh, name. That's the first name. But but I think that people who don't immediately recognize you would benefit from some context. And, and there's actually a specific reason why uh, I wanted you to be the first person to come on, because I see you as someone who really understands the transition between where media was at the beginning of this internet boom um, and where we are now. And not only have you witnessed it and everyone who's on, uh, everyone who's on this call has seen obviously the change in the media landscape, the internet landscape, but you actually actively participated in changing culture, right? Like you were one of the main leading faces in on, on the, one of the biggest platforms in the world at a very pivotal time. And so, um, you have a lot to share, but I think it would be useful to give people some context of your career in media to this point um, so that they can get to get to know you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it started out in campus radio, but I won't bore you with that. I'll get to the sexy stuff, which is MTV. And so being at MTV during that particular era, 
was being at the center of the pop culture universe. People wanted to be on that stage more than any other stage. So it was definitely a really incredible learning ground for me. I mean, that was so young at the time. I was 19 when I started to actually explore television. I got my first gig in Toronto, Canada. That led to being on MTV. And at 20 years old, I was on MTV. So it was like my college. And so I was able to be at Total Request Live as Carson Daly was transitioning out. I came in. And it was the hottest thing to be on. And it was overwhelming at times because I felt like imposter syndrome was on my face. <laughs> I was like, they're going to figure me out. I'm like the freaking. What was that process like? Of get, I mean, like, did you have to beat a lot of people out in an audition to get this job? What was that process like? Well, for me, it was a byproduct of the work that I was doing on myself. Because just two months prior to the interview, I did the Landmark Forum. And I came out of that feeling so much possibility, like in my cells, I was like, I can do anything, which is the benefit of some of this work that we do, whether it's plant medicine or whether it's a seminar series, it really does open up possibilities and and gets you thinking differently. And prior to that, honestly, I don't think I was really set up to go into that building and do much of anything. I think I had a lot of insecurities throughout my teenage years. I had a lot of issues that showed up. You know, I did a small show in Canada that was pretty safe to do, small audience, and it was a great place to start start to learn how to host, but I made a heck of a lot of mistakes that I'm sure if I was on a live broadcast, I would have been fired within a week. So for me, that was a real turning point because if I hadn't done that work on myself to set myself up for that opportunity and I'll I'll give you the the story now in terms of how I got in the door cuz it was wild. I mean, I literally had failed at the similar ascent in Canada. This VJ role was something I wanted to do at Much Music because Much Music was our version of MTV in Canada. And they had a VJ search that I submitted a reel for. And then they chose me as a finalist, but then I was the runner up. So I was not the winner. And then I got another job based on how well I did with that. So even though I didn't win, I ended up getting another job in television. It was a small network though. Like I was saying, it was a really tiny network, small show, first season of it, but it was a great opportunity. And so I started to get a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more confident on camera. Uh, But then I had the opportunity, thanks to a friend of mine, to actually have my stuff seen by an agent at William Morris, which at the time was one of the more powerful agencies. Now it's been merged with Endeavor. And so it's named something different. I can't even keep keep track of all the mergers going on in Hollywood. But basically that was the, the place. It, I mean, my agent who was responsible for getting me in the door at MTV was representing movie stars. You know, So all of a sudden I had this incredible opportunity to walk into MTV with some backing because of that agency, this friend of mine who hooked me up through his aunt, who was an agent. I mean, it was just a beautiful synchronicity that He even thought that I could do something on that level, A, and then that he would make a point of advocating for me with his aunt was incredible. And then that his aunt would even give me the time of day. I mean, so we're looking at like three major miracles there. And then the fact that I could walk in that door and think that I could actually become a VJ was was indicative of the work that I'd done recently on my mindset and, and doing that work with Landmark. And so I walked in there definitely feeling like I wasn't worthy. And literally, as I was walking in the building, there was pop stars walking out. And it was like, wow, okay, here I am way out of my league. uh, And yet I'm in the building. So there was something really dynamic going on. I walk into this meeting, talent development executive, a guy named Scott Venner, who's now uh, the broke mogul. He's known as uh, the 
a music supervisor behind Entourage, and now he's killing it, hosting a show with Pharrell. I mean, he's incredible, genius. I'd say he's one of the biggest culture movers that uh, not enough people know about, but he's, he's the guy that was there interviewing me that day. And so he was sitting there on the other side of this desk in one of these corner offices at MTV, and he had this poker face. He's actually a poker player, so he like would not really indicate, based on his facial expression, how I was doing at any point during the interview. And so there I am, privately, wildly insecure, but having just armed myself with some self-development tools uh, that had me propping myself up enough. But meanwhile, I mean, inside, internally, I, I felt like a fraud. I felt like, man, this, is this guy taking me seriously? Like, does he know that I have barely two years of experience on campus radio? And that's that's the platform that I'm standing on? You know, the other people that were on the network at the time, it was Carson Daly. It was these people who had years of experience in professional radio before getting the shot. And then furthermore, most of them go through millions of screen tests in order to get that job. So there I am, one meeting with Scott Venner. At one point, he asked me, he goes, so why do you want to be a VJ on MTV? Like straight up, just like that. And I, I looked at him. I was like, well, because I can't sing like Maxwell. And this is the next best thing. <laughs> so you know, and that was like literally the only time in the interview where he cracked a smile. I was like, oh, thank God I'm not bombing entirely here. But I, I felt like I was bombing. I mean, I got developed dry mouth in the middle of the interview. You know, you know, when you're so nervous, you literally start to like lose the, salad, the moisture in your mouth. So it was like that. But thankfully, I did well enough where I walked out of that office and I left an impression and he'd filmed some of it. And then that tape made it around the building. And then two days later, I get a call from my agent that they want me to be a VJ. You know, that's, that's, I think a lot of times the, the way that we think we're being perceived and the way we're actually being perceived are two different things. 100%. Um, and there's a, there's a lesson in there and, and what I'm sure you got to talk to him after that. Cause you guys became friends. What was the thing that made you pop to them? Do you think it was, it was the passion. It was the enthusiasm and the fact that I was willing to be that guy. I, I, I was not at all jaded by any part of the industry because I hadn't really been in the industry. So I hadn't yes. done radio for years. You know, I just, I was really enthusiastic. I was like, I got the, the scope of what was going on. I didn't even grow up with MTV, but I knew that it was the thing that influenced much music, which is what I grew up with in Canada. So I knew that it was a huge opportunity. And at that point I was open. I was, I was in the flow, right? Like with the landmark work that I'd done months prior, I was open to accepting everything in front of me and not blocking it, not, you know, having some weird sort of subconscious tick get in the way. Uh, I, I, was, I was aware of what was going on in real time. And, and he said that it was, it was the way that I approached it as myself. I was completely unashamed to be that passionate, enthusiastic kid from Canada who made that joke about not singing like Maxwell. I mean, like who says that, right? I mean, it's like, so there was like this level of audacity and uh, almost naivete that I brought into the room that was refreshing given that most people that he saw in that office were well too, aware, aware, uh, well too well aware of MTV and the gravitas and they bought into it. And there was some level of like, I got to position myself a certain way. I got to maybe seem like Carson Daly. I got to say this like Carson Daly, you know? And I was like, I don't even know who Carson Daly is. So <laughs> I'm just going to do me because I don't know the dude that I'm replacing. I'm just going to do it. And that was what happened. I honestly feel like that, and I don't know uh, Trevor No, but I feel like it's a similar story with him replacing John Stewart. It's like he wasn't trying to be John Stewart, and if he had, he would have bombed. Yeah, you know, and 100%. and they would have came after him with pitchforks. 
for trying to be. Now, I, I think you were actually an upgrade to Carson, but still, you know, it's, well, um, it's I appreciate you saying that. I mean, the thing is, we just had different styles. It was just a complete, yeah. it's like comparing steak to an apple. <laughs> it's like, and I don't know who Wait, the steak who, is. Who's, yeah, I was going to say, who's the steak? <laughs> <laughs> Careful. It's just, just different. It's just different. And that's the thing. And that's the thing about being in this creator economy and how so many people are flooding into the space of being a creator and wanting to figure out how to you know, crack the algorithm and, and gain the following and this and that. So there's, there's so much uh, comparison syndrome that goes on within that, that, that landscape of being on a platform like an Instagram or YouTube and then having all these other frames of reference for how to do the thing that you're endeavoring to do. And, and so I think there's definitely a lesson in that, which is do you, I mean, God, if you look at other people's lanes and try to pick up other people's personality and co-opt it as your own, you will fail because people nowadays, there's such a bullshit meter, you know, we're talking about something that we're all seeing. Like it's very clear when people are doing their best Gary V impression, you ain't Gary V don't even try. Yep. I want to see it, you. That's well, that's so interesting too, because I think that, um, you know, one, social media has given us the ability to like amplify our voice. But then if we're not actually using our voice, we're just amplifying bullshit. Yeah. You know? And listen, I mean, it's, it's, it's relatively normal, actually. It's very normal. It's all too normal for people to have that line of thinking, right? It's like, well, success leaves clues. There's all these sayings, right? That would lead somebody down that rabbit hole of model oh, someone else. A hundred percent, hundred percent. You know, But then they're abandoning the, the unique gifts that, that are right here, you know? And, and I almost did that. There was moments in my career where I wasn't all together as authentic as that moment after I came out of that seminar that I got that interview at MTV. I can't claim to always have been this authentic full expressed being. I had moments of definitely looking around and saying, well, you know, I got to keep up with the Joneses here and there. Uh, and, and those are the moments where I felt so contracted. You know, I felt like instead of sort of expanding into what my soul wanted to offer the world, it was this idea of like, how can I fit myself into this box so that I could be like, like that person. And it's a very, it's a very different life. It did. And I was going to say, you know, one, how did your life immediately change after making that huge transition? And two, do you feel like the industry tried to squeeze you into a box because it is very formulaic? You know, I, I, when I look at it from this perspective, as an empowered grown adult, nobody forced me to do anything. It was all self-inflicted. And I think that's a, that's a big thing with any relationship with an institution, with a company, with, you know, the man, it's like, it's so easy to go into this notion of someone's forcing this, you know, I'm, I'm victim to this or that. Viacom. Yeah. It's like, nobody held a gun to my head and told me to be a certain way. I just projected that I probably ought to be a certain way based on what I was seeing in other people's success. And so, you know, there was a lot of choice points all along the way. And sometimes I chose to be my authentic self. And sometimes I chose to pretzel into something else based on what were some, some of those ideas. times. I want to know what some of those times were. Well, when I left MTV, I had a, a pretty audacious notion that I could come out to LA and I would freaking blaze into Hollywood with all the celebration and confetti following every entry. What year was that? Every meeting. I mean, this was 2006. Okay. And so I, I noticed as the, the culture was shifting. YouTube was stealing a lot of our thunder. We were losing some of our audience. We were also losing some of our taste-making edge. Like within the building, I remember having to debate a producer to bring Kanye West on for the first time. Can you imagine? Like Through the Wire was just starting to break through at college radio. I met him backstage thanks to our mutual friend Talib Kweli. And so I was like, dude, th this was great 
performance you just gave on stage with Talib with this Get By remix. Let me get you on MTV. Then I had to literally debate someone at MTV in order to get Kanye on. So imagine, you know, the tastemaking platform no longer being a tastemaker. We're like starting to think about how we can play it safe and make sure that the audience knows the artist. That was the argument. The producer was like, well, Kanye is so new. Will our audience know him? I'm like, are we not MTV? What is going on? Right. So, so with any given thing that happens in culture, it's like the, the breakthrough happens and then there's more to lose. Right. And I think so, so when MTV started to see all the things that it could lose as YouTube was starting to gain it marked the market share, uh, we started to lose our cool, literally. And I saw it happening. And so that's where I, I said, OK, I'm seeing what's going on in the zeitgeist and my space was emerging. And then I started talking with my space about coming on and doing artist development for MySpace records. And so I came out to L.A. under the guise of I'm going to get more behind the scenes and start to influence culture through the Internet with MySpace. And I'm also going to become this actor that doesn't need to have any real craft. You know, I had like an illusion around that, like I'm going to be the next Denzel, but I won't get Denzel's coach. I will just be Denzel. You know, it's just like ridiculous. So I definitely got a lot of humble pie in those kind of conversations. Uh, but but being in MySpace was was another place that I learned a lot about like how to move culture and then how to actually uh, retain the thing that got us in the zeitgeist in the first place. So when Fox acquired MySpace, woof, that was another. Wait, so so back it up. My, I didn't even know MySpace had a record label. What, what is exactly, that about? exactly. What, what, well, so what is that? About? It's like the premise of it was really great. That's what got me over there was the fact that at the time it was the discovery platform for artists, right? That was the place to be. Artists would break on MySpace and then- Like SoundCloud. It was there, exactly, exactly. So MySpace at that point was thinking, okay, how do we take advantage of this? How do we actually use our uh, amazing platform to actually develop artists and then have a record label? We partnered with Interscope Records. So on paper it was fantastic, right? But this is the thing, it's like, culture is a moving target. Like I always talk about what, it, what, is it, what does it mean to move at the speed of culture? And, and, and then on, on the upside, actually create culture. And it's not the easiest thing as it turns out. <laughs> it's like, it's a moving target, you know? And, and so you got to really pay attention. And, and at MySpace, I was starting to notice that, you know, th these conversations we were in as an artist development department really were indicative of the building. Because when Tom started to take his eye off what was happening on a day-to-day -day basis, it was starting to really impact the culture. If, if we couldn't get Tom on the phone, as, we, as I brought in Drake, I brought in Drake before any other A&R. The Tom, the original Tom of the avatar of MySpace. Yes, yes. And at that point, you know, he was not really present for us as a department. So then as I bring in Drake before Lil Wayne even got his hands on him, right? We had the opportunity to sign Drake before anyone. And so my A&R department was like interested enough based on the meeting we had Drake was not nearly where he is now in terms of his whole thing. So, so it was a bit of a tougher sell, a lot of a tougher sell. He was like an actor who was on Degrassi High, you know what I'm saying? And he was transitioning to being a rapper. And granted, he was at the top of the MySpace charts, but it was still like a credibility thing that people were like, huh, I don't know about, you know, wheelchair Jimmy being the yeah. rapper that he's pretending to be right now. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I saw the talent and so I brought him in. And anyway, sure enough, we could not get Tom to respond to the email about Drake oh. for this is, this is the thing. And like, I, I keep wanting to highlight these things because I know your audience is like a, a real, like very dynamic entrepreneurial audience and wants to like always get the takeaway. And like, for me, that takeaway is you cannot leave the game. If you're an entrepreneur, any given email could change the game for you. Can you imagine 
if Tom had fucking responded to that email and we signed Drake, I mean, listen, anything could have happened. We could have screwed the pooch. He could have had the lamest fucking A&R department in the world behind him. You know, like I, we weren't necessarily the greatest, honestly. And Lil Wayne was was important to him at the time to get credibility. And I don't know if Lil Wayne would have been nearly as invested or interested in propping him up if MySpace already had a piece. Right. So it's like you can think a lot of different ways about it. But the fact is that was an inter- that was an intersection where Tom was not present, right? So it's like presence is the portal, man. The game is always happening. And and he took his eye off the ball. And of course, like I'm not a victim to it. I could have definitely jumped on a table like Diddy and you know freaking rammed it down his throat, but I didn't. And so that's that's my piece to live with. But you know, it's just interesting to look at all these different you know, plays in the game. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I guess everything works out as it should, but it is interesting when people have these decision points in and and to see, you know, to see now how quickly artists come up. It's almost like the the roles are reversed. Now the labels want to get them even earlier because mm-hmm. of all because because of the fact that they realize that artists don't really need labels like they used to. Yeah. You know? So when you were transitioning in this time, uh, you know, as a, as a record executive and, you know, the music industry still kind of was on its high horse of we're the kingmaker. And now they know that they're not, you know, yeah. the yeah. people Chance are the deciding rapper. before the records know. You know? 100%. This is like post Chance the Rapper, right? I think he was yeah. like the one of the artists that really made it clear that record labels were absolutely an option, not the gatekeepers anymore. Oh, yeah. I mean, same thing with Nipsey. You know, it's just yep. like you can look at that and say, the, and really what it is, is he's just removing, it, it's finding a way to remove, really the record labels in many ways are barriers between the artist and the audience, you know, and the artists who can figure out how to get around that barrier are the ones that just successfully connect and yet yeah, it really goes to show how important it is to to maintain that connection with your with your fans 100 percent. and sometimes record labels can get in the way of momentum and they can start to feel that the oversight is really important and then the artist feels stifled and gets on a shelf you know like when i look at interscope records there's so many artists that could even get their album out at the time because of the way that interscope ran things you know when i think about our operation in myspace and the artists that i did manage to sign we signed them on a single deal based on a song that we all unanimously loved as a department. And then <laughs> we felt the need to get a, a hot producer to do another version of it so that we could have a hot producer attached to the record because he was an unknown artist. And so we were breaking him essentially. And we felt like, let's ju- just smack a really cool, trendy producer on there. And literally that line of thinking had us doing version after version after version for a year. So he literally sat on the shelf Well, was active in trying to make this song something like we imagined it to be, even though the original was what we signed them on. So this is the this is the crazy <laughs> thing about sort of the, the corporate dynamic and, and, and the, the sort of checks and balances and like overthinking and too many meetings. Like I remember having meetings about meetings about meetings. I'm like, what are we even talking about here? Didn't we talk about this six meetings ago? Are we still having meetings about this? Right. So it's like there's so much to take apart there when it comes to like the, the benefit of being an indie artist, the benefit of being an entrepreneur who may have a startup that doesn't have these sort of, let's say, investors that need to look at every piece yeah. of your business before you move forward with your next phase. I mean, th- th- and, and time on the clock again, like presence is the portal and like the, the, the market is changing constantly. Culture is changing constantly. So the idea that you had last quarter may flop this quarter. So if you're waiting for some freaking person to check off on the idea, man, you might've missed the moment. Yeah. And I think that it's only accelerating more quickly as technology advances to meet the demands of the market. 
and things go faster and faster. So it's like, it's a constant process of keeping your eye on the ball, implementing and never getting too secure in your position that you think you can, you can afford to Tom it, as they say. <laughs> yeah. Can't and like, meanwhile, I mean, he's got so much money. I, <laughs> can you yeah. even fault him? Like, I don't even, when I look back on it, I don't know, you know, he's hanging out in Hawaii with probably like seven women feeding him fruit. I don't know. Like, so am I going to judge the man? No, he probably worked his ass off to get my space to that point. He probably deserves a vacay. So whatever. But yeah. it just depends on what game you want to play. So, so what happened after MySpace for you? Well, so at that time, I was I was definitely still exploring certain hosting things that were on my table. So I'd, I'd do an entertainment news show here and there. And this is where, going back to the point of uh, pretzeling and trying to, you know, basically fit into a different box. Uh, when I started doing entertainment news, I think that was where I started to feel really compromised because of, of the context of that conversation, the way that entertainment news was at the time and still is in a lot of ways. It's sort of this clickbait culture and it was not... A space for 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 me ideally to thrive. I mean, I, I certainly could have made it something that it wasn't, but then it would be something different. And then, you know, again, like my executive producer probably would have left that on the editing room floor, you know. So it, it was a really challenging time for me to try to fit into a different lane as a host, where like MTV was this blank canvas in a lot of ways. Like I love MTV for the fact that it never once told me. I mean, well, there was one time where this executive producer was like, is that Afro a little too black for our audience? You know, so that happens. Yeah. And, but that, you know, that was, that didn't stop me. I still went out on the air and had the Afro. So, I mean, you know, whatever, uh, inconsequential in the, in the grand scheme of things, but you know, with entertainment news at the time, it was this clickbait culture. Uh, it was not the centerpiece of cool where MTV, we had that leverage to do whatever we wanted entertainment news was basically just like scrambling after headlines. You know, it's like scrambling after the interview, the soundbite, whatever. So it just is this very sort of desperate environment, honestly, when I look back at that and uh, some people pull it off. God bless Mario Lopez and whoever the hell Billy Bush. Mario Lopez made it his bitch. (laughs) Mario Lopez has made entertainment news his bitch. He's the only thing holding that whole industry up. (laughs) I went to a hotel recently and they have him on a loop on like on, on E!, yeah. And all it is is him on TV just hosting different shows. I'm like, I thought you, you host that show too. That that one too? Mario. <laughs> God bless him, man. God bless him. But it was one of those things that I did not necessarily thrive in. And so that was probably my biggest challenge within my career in television is, is finding my footing in another arena. And then this is another lesson about sort of where things can be transferable and where things are challenging to transfer. You know, like we we can weave lanes, but then just know that there's something that needs to be adapted, you know, along the way. And and is that adaptation up to date with our identity and who we really want to be? And it wasn't, it, for me, it was, it was like, I was weaving into that lane, exploring what's possible. And I, I found that it wasn't congruent, you know? And so it was definitely a, a sobering moment in my career. And it felt like it, in a lot of ways, it sort of had me get to the point where I, I did that work again. You know, it was like another sort of dark night of the soul for me to look at the man in the mirror and say, hold on, what's going on here? Went through a couple different shows, different projects that didn't work out. And all the while I was still doing artist development here and there and directing music videos for artists and exploring different types of creativity, getting back to my poetry roots. And so it was like this really exploratory phase that ultimately didn't really reap any commercial success, but it was definitely important for me to go into that valley and understand what it means to like essentially reinvent myself, you know, and, and, uh, and the work that that took was, was a lot. I mean, it brought me to my knees in a lot of ways, but thankfully, you know, there, there were things like plant medicine, there were things like, you know, these incredible leadership trainings that I took 
that managed to, to have me in a place where now I'm, I'm having, I'm having a very different conversation and, um, and feeling like I'm authentic again. That really resonates with me in terms of, you know, you, you become known for something, you build a skill set in something, uh, you build up a vision of yourself based on a previous set of performances or a previous set of experiences. And then because of time or interest or situational needs, that version of yourself is no longer as relevant or, you know, as, uh, as potent. And you have to make a choice to either cling to what you were or leap to what you will be, what you are. And that can be a very scary time. Oh man. And terrifying. Terrifying. Yeah. As my bank account was dwindling, you know, my mortgage wasn't going anywhere. Can I negotiate with my mortgage? Can my mortgage yeah. come to the plant medicine ceremony with me? <laughs> Transition that? Oh, no, mortgage no. needs some ayahuasca. <laughs> can we please get yeah. this mortgage a shaman? No, there's, yeah. there's no, there's no movability within that. And, and so, so it was like this exploratory phase that did have an expiration date. Like I was looking at right. that, that dwindling savings account and, uh, it's like, okay, so I need to re-enter the market at this point. I can't just keep doing this sort of interior work on my life. Um, and, and so anyway, it was a really powerful transition where I realized that I, I love mentoring. I love, I love supporting, uh, this new wave of creators to have an easier time of getting on camera and really being themselves. And, yep. and, you know, certainly when I look back at my career, I think the big takeaway is, you know, if I had invested in mentorship, I would have had an easier time of it. I was having all sorts of challenges behind the scenes. Of course, like when I get on camera, I managed to have it together enough, but behind the scenes, I was, I was falling apart in a lot of moments. And, uh, and I didn't have that kind of support. You were telling me about a time uh, when you were hosting a like a national TV show and you had like a panic attack backstage. Oh yeah, so so this was a uh, first summer at MTV, and so going back to the summer of of Key West's beach house in 2001, and I'm fresh off of getting this job and feeling like I managed to sneak into the coolest party on the planet, you know. And so I was having all sorts of imposter syndrome thoughts, a lot of perfectionism rear its head and to the point where I stopped sleeping. I was literally like wired in this sort of performance anxiety around this huge breakthrough opportunity in front of me. So you can imagine this kid from Canada, 20 years old, wildly insecure within myself, really, truly like, I, you know, that landmark moment. With, and this is the thing about the work, like the work, we got to keep working the work. It's not like, you know, you do the work and then you're like levitating the rest of your life. And I think that's what I thought. I genuinely thought, wow, I feel amazing. I just got this job. I'm good. I never need to work on myself again. I'm just going to yep. go ahead and, and then whoop, 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 whoop. like it was like I, I was having uh, uh, red lights <laughs> at certain points that I wasn't picking up the cue on. Uh, and it got to the point where I literally could not sleep. And so I was trying to do the job at this beach house, my first opportunity to, you know, impress the executives and, and, and uh, you know, have America fall in love with me. And, and I was I was internally falling apart. And so I was I was having a hard time sleeping. And then one day it got so hot at this beach house in Key West. And I literally was backstage and I, I started feeling overwhelmed and, and, uh, and I fainted. I literally fainted backstage before I was about to go on and host a show. <laughs> and so then I'd come oh. to and I look up and my, my executives are around me, you know, my colleagues, my producer, you know, the stage manager, my host friends, you know, they're all looking down and they're like, man, are you, are you okay? And 
I'm like, no, I am not, you know, and, and it was a real come to Jesus moment and um, didn't have the tools at that point to like shift and just get back on my feet. I was like, I, I guys, I don't know. I don't know what's going on, but I know I'm, I'm having a really hard time here. Uh, so we, we all made the decision to have me actually go back to Canada in the middle of my three month probationary contract at the beach house in MTV. And mind you, you know, there's so many people around there like, bro, just have a, just have a joint, like just fucking enjoy things, you know, like lighten up. I'm over here. Like, oh, this is the biggest opportunity in my life. I can't sleep. I, you know, so it was just where I was at the time. And, uh, you know, 20 years old, just not, not really on my feet altogether and not really, uh, owning the reason why they hired me in the first place, you know? And that's the other thing. It's like, sometimes all, most of the time people experience imposter syndrome when we're on these platforms, we feel like how the hell did this happen? And, and am I going to be able to keep up the success? And, um, and so it's like, to the degree that we can be on that tightrope and believe in even what happens when we fall off the tightrope, can we believe in ourselves then, you know, like, and that is the thing that ultimately got me back on my feet. And so I actually ended up coming back down to Key West when they said, Hey, listen, if you can come down and finish this summer off strong and host this countdown show, then we still want you. And so I managed to get myself together, get back on a plane and fly back down. And, and they managed to, to see the potential that they saw in the first place. And then I ended up getting a, a proper contract out of it. Honestly, good on MTV for that. Cause a lot of times they'll just say, fuck them. Yeah. True you story. Know? True story. So good, good on whoever had your back, you know, because they could have easily just snip, snip. Yep. hundred percent. You know, but they couldn't they, handle they, it. They, well, that's the thing. It's like, and I think that's the other piece of this is like, I take away how important it is to nurture talent. You know, nowadays there is something to be said about how cancel culture uh, and, and, and just this, this short attention span, you know, we've gotten to the point where it's like, if it doesn't come out of the gate as a hit show within a year or two, networks don't have the patience for it. But oftentimes it takes a year or two or three to build an audience, right? It takes time, consistency, the word of mouth to get around. Uh, so, so we're living in a really different time where uh, most, most executives, most people that are in a position to hire and fire, uh, they just don't nearly have as much vision as I think this generation did before us. Well, that's, that's really relevant because many people listening to this are creators or they want to be creators. And I think there's this expectation that comes from just seeing so much online that we have this expectation of ourselves when we create to have a certain reaction or to get a certain reaction from the audience. And that's almost never the reality. And that can throw us into a spiral of doubt. You know, knowing what you know now with the tools that you have now, and, and, you know, I'll preface this by saying that I've been to one of your workshops in Los Angeles. We spent a whole weekend together doing this work, you know, but how would you handle a situation like that one that, that where you completely overloaded differently? What would be the process that you go through in your mind to coach yourself? Yeah, well, I start with inventory and just looking and seeing exactly what's going on. So there's my internal dialogue in that moment that I'm not worthy they're going to figure me out. I'm not smart enough. I'm not cool enough. I don't know who I am. What am I doing on the stage? Those are thoughts that are not necessarily the truth with a capital T. They are thoughts. We are not our thoughts. I would have the, the mindfulness to be able to say, okay, I'm going to curate the thoughts that I buy into such that I can actually feel good. And so whatever thoughts I need to sort of hinge my belief system on and my, my behavior based on, then that's what I'm going to do. Because because we just make this stuff up as we go along. That's the thing I've realized since then is like we are living out our beliefs, which are up to us to choose. And so at the time, I just wasn't choosing empowered beliefs about myself. 
relative to the opportunity in front of me. So I would coach myself to look at what are you believing? What are you choosing to believe right now? Are you, are you believing that you're not worthy of this job, even though you have the job? So it's like, there's a cognitive dissonance that happens a lot of times when we are not really in touch with what's right in front of us and present to what it is that is occurring. And so, I, you know, really, truly just being present is oftentimes the game. It's like, can we breathe into how good it can be? Can we breathe into how awkward it can be? You know, with, let's say we put out a video, we work really hard on YouTube and the reception is not great. Well, what do we choose to believe in that moment? Do we believe that based on the performance of the video, we shouldn't be doing YouTube? Or do we believe that, okay, this is just part of the process and I get to continue to develop this audience and nurture and iterate and do what we need to do. So it's really looking at that intersection of belief and designing for what it is that we want versus defaulting. I often think about it, it's just a game of default or design all the time throughout the day, moment to moment. It's like default design. My default is still unworthy. I'm still feeling unworthy at times, but I know well enough to say, okay, I'm going to just load up my morning practice with what I need to get my state ready for whatever comes. So meditating, it's journaling, it's affirmations, it's whatever it needs to be, you know? And so, so really looking at how do we optimize this vessel for what we're endeavoring to do and, and always being mindful that it's generally a correlation. Like if I'm feeling away and not feeling empowered, it's probably because I didn't really prepare in whatever way I needed to meditation, yoga, whatever it is, there's practices. I always say the path is in the practice. That's interesting too, you know, like, cause I just had a, a jujitsu tournament and uh, you know, when you're trying to perform in, on any stage um, there's so much of it that goes just into the preparation beforehand that if you are properly preparing uh, it makes the expression of that preparation, hopefully a lot less nerve wracking. It doesn't always mean that you're not going to be nervous or feel some type of emotional response, yeah. but there's a certain amount of, you know, uh, of daily practice that can eliminate that. And in your daily practice, you know, you should be experiencing these mini failures on a mm-hmm. consistent basis. Mm-hmm. And that should open your, your uh, willingness up to fail on a consistent basis where if you go to competition or if you're filming something live and you do kind of fumble, you don't care. Uh-huh. Like, like if you're on a show now, do you feel that you could, bo- like there's no bombing it because you're embodied. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if, yeah. if you mess up your script, would you not just pick it back up and start from where you need to start? You know, do you yeah. still feel nervous? Or, well, or I had a feel- moment, I, I was facilitating a training the other day and I made a really dumb joke. So it was a leadership training. And so I'm facilitating and I see an opportunity to make a joke. And out of context, I mean, truly, when I think about the context of a leadership training versus my stand-up comedy, <laughs> which is still hasn't taken off yet. No, but like I have this part of me that always wants to joke around and have fun. And it sometimes will leak into a different container. <laughs> one that's yeah, not- Leak into a container. Wrong container, wrong <laughs> yeah, container. Exactly. And so, you know, uh, somebody who was on my team uh, that was uh, in charge of sort of overseeing whatever could be feedback for me uh, made a point of saying, hey, like that, that might not been the greatest thing to say right there. Like there was there was definitely a few cringes on the screen uh, relative to what we were talking about. And I'm like, OK, cool. Like, I got it, you know. And but but what was different this time was that I immediately was aware of that. And I made a joke about myself making that joke. And so so it's like. When, when I approach it lightheartedly without feeling this need to be perfect, you know, and truly allowing for my humanity to be at play in real time, A, I'm way more relatable 
way more accessible and, and, and we can have fun with it. You know, we're not taking ourselves too seriously and expecting some perfection. That's really not a real thing. Yeah. I mean, honestly, you could fart on stage and that's relatable. It's like, Oh, you don't fart. Oh, you don't. (laughs) Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and, and I think that, yeah, there's a certain amount of, um, there's the vulnerability of being able to like make a mistake and especially in front of people and say, just fuck that up. Sorry. You know, and that is almost more impressive than a bulletproof polished appearance. 100%. You know, because um, uh, Nassim Taleb has something interesting. He says, like, basically any of the professions that wear a uniform are the most vulnerable to attack. If you wear a police officer's uniform or even a doctor, or these are all archetypes. And the archetypes can't go outside of their prescribed bounds. They're, they're stuck inside of a, of, a, of a cage that has some respect. People respect it. But it's not actually describing a human, it's describing an archetype. And if you can show that you're not the archetype of the stand-up host with the perfectly polished presentation and you're a human doing the thing and being the thing, that's actually more powerful than being the perfection of the archetype because everyone knows that there is no such thing. Well, and and this is why I think podcasting is the most important medium happening right now because it's a space where people are allowed to be. There is not this constraint of traditional media and, you know, we got to hit this thing this certain way. We only have this amount of time. Then we have commercial breaks and we have advertisers to respond to. And this podcasting has blown the lid off of what's possible as a host, as a creator, in a relationship with an audience that can now have such a high touch point. You know, there's a, there's a quality of conversation that's happening now that's unprecedented. You know, there's some talk radio, I suppose we can look at like Howard Stern, maybe as a precedent. Uh, but like the things that Joe Rogan are, is doing right now, as an example, and he's literally talking to people for three hours. I was listening to this interview we had with Dave Chappelle the other day. I was like, this has never happened in media. We have never been able to talk to an iconoclast genius like Dave Chappelle at length and just been privy to it like a, a fucking fly on the wall. It's, it's incredible. We're in this like new fucking renaissance of media where it's like the, the pendulum swung. It went from like, we over-edited the shit out of things for a while there. And now it's on the other side where I'm like, Joe, can we edit this part out though? Do we really need to hear the, the guests going to the bathroom for 10 minutes? So <laughs> I'm not saying it's a perfect medium, but like, it's interesting. It's just so indicative of, I think, what, what the appetite is for authenticity above everything. I, that's totally true. And even if you just look at the, even if you just look at Instagram in a microcosm over the past five to seven years, what started as needing to be very perfectly polished and packaged with the right filter, the right image, the right caption, there are still obviously accounts like that, and that's still part of it. But I think that people now are much more responsive to, honestly, shit posts in a way, because it's more realistic. Yeah, 100%. You know? 100%. I mean, I think I think the, the posts that I've seen, and I know I do this for a living, I coach people and we look at analytics and we look at how it felt to make the post. So not just the analytics and the output, but like also internally and like looking at basically the thing that performs the most is, is all a creator needs to do. We need, I mean, we have it all in front of us now. That's the other beautiful part about what media is giving us now. Social media, it is the most transparent view at the anatomy of the relationship between a creator and the audience that we've ever had. It used to be Nielsen ratings. And we wouldn't Nielsen. know, right? We wouldn't know like what segment in TRL would connect. Like we wouldn't even have the, the 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 nuance of data to know like what segments work within the show. We just knew this show got this amount of views, period. That was it. 
right now we can look at the insights. Anyone can look at the insights on Instagram and be very clear about the patterns of how this post, this type of post performs over this. So it's fascinating to be in that relationship with the performance of our posts in relationship with how authentic we're being. Because I guarantee if you look at your analytics right now, the posts where you're being authentic and also value driven, right? Thinking about like, what is the value that's driving this thing? What's the intention behind it? It's, it's, it's right there in front of us. Oh yeah. I mean, and I've seen this firsthand, like when I put up something about, when I put up an inspirational quote, I get a lot of people kissing my ass saying how nice it is, but it's just me putting up something that I think will, will make the algorithm happy. Sure. When I put up something that is useful and meaningful to me, the engagement goes way up and or even if Instagram doesn't promote it as it should, because I think there are there's some censorship going on here. I, the, the number of DMs I get is indicative of people actually watching. Well, and this, you know? this is important. What we're talking about here, I think, is the most important conversation happening online, which is what's more important, the quality of the connection with your audience or this idea of like going viral? Because I will say this, there are people that go in huge numbers that don't get those DMs. Correct. And so you got to look at like, what then makes the difference? Like what will have someone go into your DM and then be a client? That's the only thing that matters as far as I'm concerned. Everything else is vanity. A lot of people getting distracted by vanity right now and they're getting confused about the whole point. Say that again for the people in the back, please. <laughs> I mean, listen, if, if your content is not driving more clientele, you are wasting your fucking time. You are in a pageant. Oh, oh I don't want to be in a pageant. <laughs> Well, it's true. And, and, but then as a creator, I mean, I know you've done this. I've done this too. We're looking at our page. We're looking at people with pages like ours and saying, they got more likes. They got more, more comments, even if, even if the comments aren't even quite relevant or they're like, you know, probably some bots too, but it's just like, they got more of the interior of the exterior, you know, virtue signals. Yep. But then we also know that because of the way the platforms are set up, they're also set up to promote a certain type of content, but people are still seeing your stuff. Yeah. You know? Well, that's the thing. It's it, it, so there's a lot of there's shades of gray in this too. Like I, I know we can come in really hot with this stuff and have really strong opinions, but there are a lot of nuances. So, so to think about like the post that's not necessarily on the nose that doesn't necessarily speak to your avatar, so to speak. Let's say you want to get political. Let's say you want to speak about something happening at the Texas border to Haitians, right? And it's like completely out of the, your strategy for content that month, but you feel compelled to share something about what's going on politically or otherwise. There's some real value in that too. There's some real major value. And of course, you might lose some followers that don't want to hear from you about that. But I would argue that most people now really want to get the heart of who they're thinking about doing business with. And if you're not showing heart about things that are clearly injustices, and we saw this last year, right? Yeah, exactly. I see Don commenting. It shows that you're not tone deaf, which speaks to your character which speaks to the type of service you're probably going to render. People make these connections, whether consciously or subconsciously. So, so there's a lot to be said about posts that aren't part of the typical strategy here. Yeah. I mean, I don't even think that I have a strategy anymore. I think it's more just like, I'm going to post whatever I think is the most relevant thing to my personal life. And what's interesting is I've noticed as I've got, I made this decision, you know, last month, I said, you know what? Fuck them. I'm just going to, you know what? I'm just going to post literally whatever I want. I'm going to yeah. go on on Biden. I'm going to go on on Trump. I'm going to go in on COVID. I'm going to go in on governments. I'm going to go in on taxes. I'm going to talk about business too. I'm going to talk about my failures. I just don't give a shit. And I mm. already have been pretty open. Now I'm just like, take it all. 
Mm. And what I've gotten, what I've seen is every day my follower counts going down, but my mm. DMs are going up mm. every day. There it is. There it and is. People will say, and, and what, and I was actually talking to my mom about this. Cause I was saying, cause she's not on Instagram, uh, but I was saying to her, yeah, I'm just going in on Instagram. She's like, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. But I'm like, I'm going in. I don't give a shit anymore. And she's like, yeah, but isn't that going to be bad for your business? I'm like, actually it's amazing. She's like, mm. but don't, won't people get offended? And I think one of the the ways we used to think is if you, what was the, what our parents say? Don't talk about politics. Don't talk about race. Don't talk mm-hmm. about how much money you have. Don't yep. talk about anything that's too sensitive because that will turn people off. But then you end up sanitizing everything. Then you end up being vanilla and everyone knows that people have opinions about. Yeah. 100%. So, you know, well, I think it, we're in the like, age of social responsibility. I think that's what we're totally, in. Totally. Totally. Yep. And I, it, the, the messages I'm getting are not just inspirational posts. It's the things you've been posting recently are so much more on the nose than what you've put in the past, or they're so relevant. And thank you for saying this. Yeah. And yeah. That, I'm like, Oh, you know? Yeah. And then, and then you get to look at also the impact on yourself. I mean, that's, good. that to me is the most important thing. Cause at the end of the day, if you're sitting on the sidelines of some of these things that we're seeing now, you're, you're not going to be able to sleep well at night. It may not happen that way, but eventually there's going to be like this chipping away at your soul ultimately. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's why social media is toxic because you're not in alignment. You're saying one thing and then you're in your private conversations talking about all this other stuff. Yep. You know? So yeah. I just think, how can I take a crap on the government today? <laughs> you know? And then, yeah. I mean, and honestly, know? like as someone who's your friend, who's seeing some of these posts, I'm, I've, I've been a little bit like concerned, but I know that what's more important than my concern is your freedom of expression, that you are making a difference where you want to be concerned. No, I mean, listen, I mean, like, I'm like, I'm like your mom now, right? I'm like, I'm so concerned. No, no. I'm like, I'm just like, oh, wow. Okay. He's going in. And I know what that means. Cause I've gone in, you know, you see me, I'm oh, like, you. on stuff over here too. And, and I've gotten a few, you know, I mean, when I went about Israel and Palestine, I mean, and I, by the way, I did not even have a strong stance. I just wanted us to have a better say the word. <laughs> I really, I've been to Israel. I have friends who are there. I, I am somewhat informed, but I had no illusions about being an expert. And I just said, guys, can we just notice how we're being about this with each other? Like we all feel like we need to have some sort of opinion. We need to put out some meme. We need, it's like, can, did you do the research? That's all I'm asking. Did you do the research? I'm not saying anything that I, I'm not the fucking knower of all things. I'm just saying, are we having a moment of pause in the midst of trying to keep up with the clicks? You know, it's like, that's yep. essentially the biggest issue I'm seeing now is that the benefit of traditional media back in the day is that there was some oversight. There, were, there would be some fact checking. Now, there's also some agenda driven stuff going on based on who the editors were at the magazine or whatever have you. But now everyone's got a megaphone for better or worse. And so it gets really noisy and it gets really misinformed and gets really biased. Yep. So it's like, yep. so it's this is really dynamic space. And this is why I think I'm going to be a, a media guy the rest of my life because, you know, essentially media is the way that we understand the world. You know, our yeah, lens is uh, one thing, but yeah, what we're being fed is another. It was interesting. I had a, um, a friend uh, from China and uh, and I was watching the news and she asked me, you know, why are you watching that? And I said, oh, well, I want to know, you know, kind of what's going on. And she looked at me and she said, um, she said, yeah, well, you know, most Chinese citizens don't watch the news. And I was kind of like confused. Though, why? And she said, because everyone knows that it's just propaganda. And I said, oh, you know, and, and I think America's we've already known that, but we're also waking up even more to it. Mm-hmm. And I remember maybe in 2009 or so, I went to uh, the CNN headquarters in in, uh, in Atlanta and I did one of the tours 
And I thought it was something, something struck me as odd, you know, because they were giving us a tour of, you know, of how the news is, how the news is made. <laughs> like, here's how we make the sausage. And they had a, a, like, they had a, a, a big red desk, you know, um, that was in front of one of their huge TV screens with all these different things from all over the world that were happening. And they said, this is the fact desk where we take the information that's coming in and decide what's the facts, you know, and what's not. And I thought, so it's humans at the desk deciding? So, but you know, does that not seem like very fallible and very potentially biased? And CNN, you know, up until potentially recently was seen as like the gold standard of factual, unbiased information. But now we're seeing, well, that's not necessarily the case, is it? Well, that's the thing. And 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 I do think that there is a lot of grace that we need to give to to everyone who puts themselves in a position where they are the gatekeepers of information. I mean, that, that's that's inherently a challenging position to be in because things are constantly changing. And then what was reported earlier today, there's new information and now you're expected to like, so there's, there's so much there to have compassion for. And th- this is why, I mean, the, the sort of clickbait culture that we've developed, you know, the advertising model, a lot, there's a lot of things that are systemic issues within media that social media in some ways has solved and made better, right? So we, we see like the upside of how, you know, we get more honest citizen journalism at times where we can see things that CNN yeah. wouldn't necessarily show us or different reporting, different points of view. Yeah. But then it's like, it, it is up to the individual ultimately. I, I, I believe in personal responsibility above all to actually have discernment and, and, and notice our own proclivity to wanting to, you know, be the first to post about something or, or be right about something, right? Like the dopamine rush that we get to be right in a comment section is something we get to be really mindful of, right? Because then we're, we're pissing people off or, or, or we're just not really even seeing ourselves in action at times. So that's why I think that like the intersection of mindfulness and media is the most dynamic intersection going on right now. There's just not enough of that conversation. Like how are we engaging? Yeah, there's a, there's a term I use with one of my friends too. We talk about... Um, Units of attention, like how many units of attention are you are you allocating to certain activities in your life? And I think, man, like when I when I consider how much time I spend, how many units of attention I give to a conversation online, I think is this the best use of my attention? Mm-hmm. Because there's there's a finite amount in the day, and if I'm in the comment section just slinging mud, which is fun, which it feels good sometimes. I want to kill. It feels good. Uh, but then I'm like, that achieved nothing because they come back with something that shows they didn't even read my thing. They were just yeah. saying their next thing. And I'm like, yes. I just put two paragraphs in the comments and I don't even know how to space it well on Instagram. So it's all blurred. It's one block. And then, you know, it, and you didn't even read it. And also my point is still better. But, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> well, you know, and that's why I think we need to put the social back in social media. Like when we think about the word social, like yeah, would yeah. we be the way that we're being in these comment sections if someone was across no. a dinner table from us? No. No, we would probably be more inclined to listen and give them the benefit of doubt and ask a question. It's just like a different type of conversation. So it, it, I've been thinking about this a lot about how, how do we actually shift the way that we approach social media so that it's the equivalent of that so that we can actually look at every opportunity to, to be in a post of, you know, reading it, being engaging with people in such a way where it's actually indicative of our best self. Like we're, we're, we actually are the way we are online, the way we want to be offline. And it's like, there's that sync, there's that alignment. If you can figure that out, 
Nobel Nobel Prize, if you can figure that one out. <laughs> That's literally my life's work right now. I'm like in it. Yeah. But, I mean, but it's like, then you get to wondering, are we set up for that? Like, is the actual platform designed for that? You know, is I it- don't think it is. Because I, I don't think that, because what is it? If it bleeds, it leads. And that's old media stuff. Mm. You know, they like to see the fighting to a, or the algorithm likes it to a certain, I mean, you look, you know, we even see just with, with Facebook over the past uh, couple of election cycles, like it promotes certain groups to attack each other because that creates more engagements. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Well, when that speaks to something that's, that's offline as well, which is our negative bias, most people have a negative bias. And so we get to look at that. So like, it almost doesn't matter what platform we're looking at or how it's designed. If our proclivity is to negative bias, whatever we're going to engage with. My, and so even this notion of a dinner party, it, it puts a little bit of a spin on that because granted, we're not going to be publicly a certain way because we're being checked by other people. That's just how we are as social creatures, right? But like internally what's going on I think I would argue is quite like the comment sections that we see. Like, so somebody says something at a dinner party in my mind, I'm like this motherfucker, I'm not saying it because right. there's that accountability of the community around. But so it's, it's interesting to look at that too. It's like, okay, so is it really even the work of people like us talking about media, exploring how to design for that? Or is it really getting to the heart of who we are as people and doing that work? Yeah. Well, I'll just, I mean, yeah, we're, we're using the, uh, we're using the internet in some ways to express our shadow, you know, because mm. there's not as much accountability, keyboard warriors, a certain mm. amount of anonymity. And, and one could argue that as we move into the new phase of the internet, where there will be even more potential for privacy, that potentially that will become even more, more of an issue. Yeah, 100%. I mean, this is something that is such a deep rabbit hole to go down. I mean, this is why when I was approaching doing a TED talk and I was exploring a couple of different things I wanted to talk about. And I was talking to a friend of mine about the idea of tackling how we are about media and, and this idea of media rehab. Like, what is that actually? Yeah. Talk mean? about that. Well, so that's ultimately the thesis of, of where my work has led me down after 20 years of being in media and looking at all these different types of conversations and media platforms. I really think that we are desperately in need of a, a way of being more mindful and being, being in a place of having better mental health and, and, and really having our ideals reflected in media. And, and so, so much of that is, is, is what I work with my clients on. And so over the years of working with people intimately who are creators and, or, or just aspiring creators, you know, I'm noticing that essentially the, the thing that turns people into a less than healthy creator is manageable, you know, but it requires a, a really high touch point in order to calibrate, in order to make the adjustments within ourselves to then re-engage in a way that is more mindful, that is more creative, that is more intentional, that is more helpful for the conversation at large. But in the absence of that checkpoint, in the absence of that work that like I do with my clients, for example, th there can be uh, uh, automaticity, there can be that default versus the design. So it's like, if we're not carving out time to design how we're being with each other online, we will default every time. You know, so it's like yeah. to the extent that we can actually carve out those, just like how we would in a relationship, get a relationship therapist to make sure that we're navigating this relationship without our patterns at play, that we actually are giving this thing a shot to go all the way to get married or whatever is the same thing we need to do with media because media is a relationship with even more people. <laughs> so you even have more opportunities to default into not your best self because you're interfacing with all sorts of different people. 
And so it's like that, that is a, a dynamite field to go through if you're not actually stacking the odds in your favor and really doing that work. And so, I mean, the work that I do with people, I mean, it's fascinating. It's like, it's like the, the depths of our psychology and our mindset is on full display. You know, like I could literally look at someone's feed and I could actually make some very clear distinctions about their consciousness, how they interface yeah. with the world. If they're not willing to share the things that are challenges for them, that tells me something about how they feel the need to actually position themselves. Mm -hmm. And if they share what they are challenged with, how they share it also indicates things. And what those challenges are. 100%. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah, it's really, it's, it's really, and, you know, I was listening to an Alan Watts lecture last night while I was cooking dinner and he was talking about, uh, this is obviously pre-social media. And I love when he says things are so on the nose for today. And you're like, ah, a man ahead of his time who drunk himself to death. Mm -hmm. um, which, which is interesting too, because as a sidebar about Alan, you know, he died as like an alcoholic and it's so mm -hmm. interesting because he always said, I'm, I'm not the, I'm not the sage. I'm not the guru, you know? Um, and I think that, I think he went so far into the, I think he went so far into the knowing that he said, it actually doesn't matter. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, like, ultimately, I think the, the, the wisest amongst us know that we don't know it all at all. Yeah. And so it's just being in the question to me, that's like the wisest thing we can do is like be in the question. Like, am I yeah. being authentic? Am I in a pageant? Am I putting myself in a Truman show unnecessarily? <laughs> it's like, well, and it, the, the point he was making was it was like, he was like, um, what we don't consider is that we think about ourselves as these uh, discrete units. But really, if you look at a flower, for instance, a flower is not a flower without the stem. It's indistinguishable from the stem. It's a mm. whole unit. Yeah. And the flower sprouts up from the ground. The ground is on the earth. The earth is part of the universe. So the flower is part of the universe. It's indistinguishable from the universe. But humans think about themselves as these individuals who are separate from the whole thing. We don't consider ourselves nature. We consider ourselves, you know, like the masters of nature. So it was like the plant thinking of itself outside of the, the ecosystem. And one thing that we really don't consider, he was saying, was that, you know, our personality and our our entire way of showing up in the world isn't just based on what we're thinking, but it's based on all the interactions we're having with people. Yeah. And we always think of ourselves as individuals when really it's the millions of inputs that we're getting that's creating the mm. output. But mm. we think that we're the ones coming up with these ideas. <laughs> and media is such an expression of that because we're intaking all this information yes. and we're only, we're only outputting after there's all taking in. Yes. I wouldn't be putting out stuff about government if I wasn't taking in all this stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm, you're, you're either reading books or you're watching things, you're hearing things, and then you're processing that. Something's happening in the processing of your brain based on past experiences, based on past input, and then you're shooting out stuff. There's yeah. no originality here, yeah. but we don't see that. And media is this echo chamber of all that, but then we're, we're so deep into it that we think that we're, we think that we're creating something original. Yeah. And so we're not even considering how what is happening is, is, is creating this echo chamber. And that's kind well, of- Well, and, and that's part, yeah. So media, media rehab is also entailing really understanding what we're, what we're taking in. Because what we're taking in ultimately defines us. Your point is, is the truest thing I've heard all fucking week. It's, it's so true that, you know, if we're in an environment where we're following what, whoever, whatever, and, and they're speaking with conviction, we're probably going to go with it, yeah. right? And so that, and that person may or may not be the greatest source. And so then that goes to, well, so what's our discernment level? And so, so our discernment level is the lever point for our reality. Oh, say that again. So the, to the degree that we are discerning, 
about how we're curating what we're consuming is the degree to which we're in touch with reality. So like this past year, for example, there've been multiple realities on display, right? <laughs> I mean, let's talk about it, right? Let's talk about it. There's, 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 we, we're all living on the same planet, but we're living different realities. Why is that? Wildly different realities from country to country. And then within states, I mean, there are some crazy differences of perception of what would seem to be universally happening events. 100%. So then, so, okay. So there's the input, but then there's also the lens that we're looking at it, right? Like I, I watched a clip that a friend of mine sent me in my DM, and this is an anti-vaxxer. By the way, when it comes to the vaccinations, I mean, I'm right there in the middle. <laughs> I got the J and J, but then Stop I immediately me was like, ah, I don't know if that was a good idea. So I'm like very, very Same. sober when it comes to what's going on here. And I see both sides and I can appreciate all points have some level of validity. And I'm also well aware of where someone's bias gets in the way of what's even input in their mind. So that if I'm looking at a video and I'm able to be in the middle and hear it with a neutrality and not have an agenda through which I listen, then I'm in touch with reality. So then I watched the same clip as my friend who sent this to me in my DM, and he sort of gave me his highlight takeaway, and it was very much influenced by his agenda being an anti-vaxxer. And I listen, I'm willing to listen. Like, I'm not the one that's going to say I'm right in this situation. There are so many shades of gray in this. Anybody who's an absolutist right now is a fucking asshole. I'm just going to say it. Like, you know, there's, there's a positioning. There is a righteousness. There is all this fucking terrible expression of who we are on full display. There's no humility. If we're being humble, we're saying we don't know what the fuck we're doing, but we're trying. Thank you. Right. So it's like to the degree that we can actually be present, neutral, not agenda driven is the degree to which we'll actually be in touch with reality. And I mean, it's, I've never seen something like this in my entire life where people have such a tendency of wanting to be right, that they need to be right or to be in survival. Right. It's this idea of like, what does it mean to be in survival versus thriving? Thriving right now means to be in the question means to be like above the noise and actually more curious than convicted about anything. Because Lord knows, I mean, when Fauci doesn't even know what the fuck he's talking about, none of us do. This guy literally lives this shit for a living. I mean, so if he's not sure what's going on, fuck, I'm not going to listen to my damn 16-year-old nephew who thinks he knows what's up. You kidding me? Fuck out well, of here. It makes, it makes you wonder, too, and I was talking to a friend about this earlier today, you know, they're going to look back on, on us in 200 years and play clips of our media and say, these fucking dumbasses. Yeah. You know, these are, these are a bunch of fucking cats chasing their tail. God damn it. They, 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 they think this fucking outlet is the truth of the capital T. And then they, they go on the high horse about it. And, and anyway, it's, I mean, it's really it's a slippery slope we're on. I'm really concerned about the collective conversation about what's going on because it's indicative of way deeper issues. So like the vaccination is highlighting the lack of humility, curiosity, empathy, listening. I mean, these things are major flaws in our society right now. Yeah. I mean, and, and I also think too, you know, there's a, I think that you can, I think that you can appreciate respect and believe in science and also look at the, the social implications of what's happening and say, that's not right. You know, I, like, like I said earlier, you know, on social, I said, I can be, I'm not anti-vax. Okay. I'm also very in the middle with you. I have one shot. And I said, I didn't like that. It felt bad, <laughs> you know, right. right. And, my, and my family says, you're a fucking dumbass. You can't come see grandma. If you don't get the second shot. I'm like, 
but I don't want to. So you're going to make me get the second one. And I also don't think that the shot, I don't think that the vaccine necessarily is toxic. I don't think it's going to have microchips from Bill Gates. You know, I don't think that, you know, that's ridiculous. I just, you know, I just don't know what I don't know. Yeah. And that's, people want to know. They want to be very certain. And yeah. there is no certainty right now. And I also 100%. think too, if you look at like, you know, I was looking at uh, some stuff that's happening in Australia. Like, I don't know if you've been paying attention to what's happening in Australia. Oh yeah. They're going, they're going ham over there. Oh yeah. And I saw, I saw um, there is, you know, armed police in SWAT gear, shooting people with rubber bullets, shooting them down as a way of, making them promoting health like wait i'm confused to get you to get the covid vaccine because the vaccine is so important to us because you're because we care about your health we're going to neutralize the protesters i'm confused you know so there's so there's a there's ethical stuff there's moral stuff which i think is separate from the science which honestly probably is good science but then also science is always incomplete yeah so well, that's the thing. You know, the whole the whole premise of science is is the the iteration, the inquiry. It has to be wrong right? for us to make progress, right? Isn't 100%. that the thing? Well, one hundred percent. One hundred percent. So don't so, we have so, to get it wrong? Well, and that's the thing. Sometimes. It's like it's like when I look at what's going on, I think we are in a massive communication breakdown above all. So there, failure think, to communicate. Failure to communicate. <laughs> so it's like so so are our anti vaxxers inherently uh, distrustful of the actual vaccination? or the dissemination of the information about the vaccination. Right. Those two things yeah, are different. And, yeah, exactly. And, and my, yeah. And, and my stance on it is, yeah, I'm not inherently, I think the vaccine itself is, is probably, probably fine, but I also am wary of anything that gets pushed too hard. Like for instance, to me, it sends a signal when the grocery store is saying, get a free donut if you get vaccinated. <laughs> No, but seriously. There is, there is a partnership between a big pharma company and yes. Krispy Kreme. We are in a breakdown. Right. Because why do you want me to take this so bad? You know, and I understand it's a public health thing, but then you're pairing something that's not healthy with a health thing. And I'm just no, like. Totally. It's 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 very, very incongruent. And and the thing is that, listen, I get that most people are doing the best they can. That's the thing that above all, I yes. always try to keep in my mind and my heart is that everyone is doing the best they can with the level of consciousness that they have, with the tools, the resources, the exposure they have, the people they have, the types of people to follow on social media, you know, the bubble. The algorithm is a thing to look at too, by the way, because if the algorithm is limiting our exposure to different perspectives, then we're actually in a bubble. Each of us yeah. is in a bubble. When, <laughs> when, when Hillary didn't win, I was like, what now? <laughs> what the hell just happened? Trump got in? Oh, hell no, right? I mean, like, there was no, there was not plausible in my bubble. No, it was not feasible. No. And I saw the New York Times has this ticker where they're tracking votes, right? And the whole night it was 98% Hillary. And then right. when, I said, wait, no, no, you said, you said that. Yeah. You lied. You yeah. Know? So, so I mean, like it, all of this stuff is so debatable. And I think we, we get to have the conversation. I think that's the issue that so many, I've been seeing anti-vaxxer anti friends of mine seem more pissed off about being censored if they mention ivermectin in a post than the actual issue underneath that, which is vaccination or not to vaccinate. So it's like, can, can we actually have freedom of speech? Yes. And if we're having a public health crisis, what's our responsibility to communicating in a responsible way as individuals. I mean, e e even like 
to the point where we're not even sure what the argument is, because some people are saying, well, we're not having a public health crisis. It's not actually killing anybody. Mm -hmm. And actually, if you look at the stats, no one's reporting the flu this year. So they just replaced the flu with COVID. And they're just like, hmm, is this true? And maybe they are right. And that's the thing. It's like, I mean, listen, so much of this is debatable. But what is not debatable is there, there are people that I've experienced in my life that have had, including myself, COVID. Yep. And it is not the flu, right? Like anybody who's had it, anybody who's had their ass handed to them by COVID knows that that is it's ridiculous. But it's like, that's, that's something that got traction. People were talking about the flu. There's this, the fucking, you know, uh, plandemic. What was the, the name of this? Oh doc- yeah, plandemic, right? yeah. So, so it's like, there, there is traction for these divergent thoughts because we have the platforms of social media. And yeah. so on the upside, it could actually be a breakthrough in understanding an issue in a way that the media outlets are not providing. And on the downside, it could be an absolute skewing of reality based on a lack of trust, uh, lack of objectivity. There's so many things we get to look at there. But it's like each of us gets to be personally responsible for the environment, the conversation we're leading. And I just don't think enough of us think that way. I think too many of us are cowboys on social media and want to be in, you know, getting the clicks above all. Let me be relevant above all, even if what I'm saying is detrimental. And so that's I, a very I, dangerous place. It's a very dangerous place. And I don't want to leave us on like the fucking doom and gloom, but like I'm being real. Like this, this is very concerning. Very concerning. No, it's true. You know, a couple of things to mention, you know, as, as we kind of like bring this to a point. One, uh, have you seen on, on HBO now, it's this new uh, documentary, Into the Storm on QAnon? Yeah, I got to see it. I keep hearing about it. It's Pretty phenomenal, just from the from the fact that they've traced all these different disparate elements of how this community was formed on 8chan, which is a message board site. I don't know about Hillary Clinton eating babies and Pizzagate and all that stuff that has somehow been sucked into this narrative. But what I think is interesting is how a community can be mobilized with just ideas you know, in this social age, it's pretty crazy that it can get to the point where they're like, okay, we're marching on the Capitol. That's nuts. Yeah. And, 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 and also, you know, it's, uh, but then it, on the flip side, it shows the power that we do have. If we're all, if we could all get, you know, if we could all get clear. <laughs> well, that's just it. It's like, and if there's one takeaway from this conversation, it's what are each of us doing to get clear? Yeah. And if we're not taking steps, if we're not doing our due diligence around the stuff we're talking about, then we're being assholes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, and I want to open the floor up in a minute, but like, what are we doing with this information? What are we doing with, even if you, even if you're not sure what is correct based on what you're seeing in the, in the news and the media, what are you doing to get clear with yourself? What are you doing to you know, um, to stay authentic with yourself. Are you still going and mindlessly scrolling and then finding yourself reacting to things that you do or don't believe in? And then are, are you staying in that loop or can you pull yourself out of the loop and bring bring that focus and that clarity back? Because really that's that's kind of all we have, you know? Totally. Our perspective is defining our destiny moment to moment. That's the quotable. Um, Don, I know you said you had some things you wanted to speak on. Let's open it up for questions now. We'll do some questions. Yeah, I didn't actually have any question. Uh, I just had some thoughts around when you were talking about um, the algorithms on on social media. I just had a really dynamic experience three, four years ago with my Facebook feed getting completely transformed uh, by the content that I was actually sharing. And that idea of being authentic or 
or uh, open or thoughtful. The thing that I believe that it takes is just a lot of damn energy because and it actually takes energy either way trying to engage people in, in anything on social media because of the amount of effort that it takes to take the time to distill our own thoughts and actually be more open with ourselves and really reflecting what we actually think and feel versus what our visceral reactions are. So we get the limited information or limited kind of info from the the, the dialogue that we engage in, but noticing that ourselves is a part of what takes a lot of the energy initially and then to respond in a way that's actually thoughtful. So it takes a whole bunch of effort that most people are either not in the mode of already operating in or don't feel like taking taking the time to really exert. So well said. I think we're living in such a lazy generation. It's an intellectually lazy generation. So that's so well said, Don. Yep. Yeah, it's 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 um intellectually lazy to not also question things too. Yeah. You know, this is something I put up the other day. I was like, I'm not saying that anything particular is right or wrong. I'm in the middle of a lot of this stuff, but it's lazy not to question it because <laughs> you don't want to do any work. It's questionable. It is. Yeah, it's questionable. You don't want to do any work. You want people to do the chewing for you and just feed you like a baby bird. And that's, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and that's that was comfortable. And why know? is that? Like, that's, that's something to explore. Why is that? That something that could be very consequential to our health and well-being is something that we would actually outsource our decision about. Well, I'll tell you straight up, it's fear. And I, I talked to my mom about this, who's a very, I mean, look, she's an insurance adjuster by trade. So she deals in risk. You know, everything mm. is like worst case scenario, which really tells a lot about her personality. Now that I've gotten older, I'm like, oh, <laughs> you think about risk 24 seven. But you know how these, you, you know, you know how uh, like last year, the Navy released these videos of the UFOs and they said, oh, actually there are UFOs. They, they, they brought this out, this is big mm. news although it probably should have been bigger. And I was talking to my mom, I was joking with her. I was like, well, you know, the Navy has released videos of UFOs. Like, you know, if there are aliens, like it seems there probably might be, would you want to know? And she said, I wouldn't want to know. It's too scary. And she was serious. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, but ma'am, there's all, like, it's pretty clear something's happening here. So wouldn't you at least want to know the truth, even if it's scary? Because it's the truth. And she's mm-hmm. like, no, that's too terrifying. And I'm like, it doesn't matter if you're scared. Can I read you something that I just came across today? It was something the Elephant Journal shared. And I think this really hits it on the head in terms of what is going on with so many of us that aren't leaning in and curiosity is that we just don't want to face it. We just don't want to face it. It's too complicated. It's it's potentially too damaging to our optimism or our our illusion about what's going on. Okay, so this is what... So Siddhartha, if you've ever read that book, you know, Siddhartha didn't become the Buddha by hiding within his palace walls, clutching his good vibes only pillow made out of plastic shipped from halfway around the world. Okay, and then the caption goes on. Good vibes only is kindergarten spirituality. Want true positivity in your life? You have to be willing to look at what's negative. Positivity is not positive if it means avoiding the tough stuff while greedily grasping for what we think we want. Stop protecting yourself from negative energy. Start, start opening to the world. At some point, we must be willing to blossom. And he goes on. But that's the point. It's like, can we be uncomfortable in the examination of what's going on? Most people can't. And get a gun. 
and get a gun. No, it's <laughs> a, a terrible idea. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, but it's just like, yeah. Um, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a fair point. And some people will never uh, completely open up to the scary things because then you have to do some work. Yes. Yeah. It's, you know, well, so yeah. And let's talk about that. So like on, on the overall general baseline of most humans, we want to avoid pain. We want to be right. We want to be in control. And, and that's, those are the main drivers. So as long as I mean, those yeah, things aren't checked, then we're going to be unconscious. And, and if those things are in any way uh, uh, questioned or they feel shaky or people kind of poke at them, sometimes it creates not only the fear response, but the anger response, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which is what I saw recently when I put up a post and I, I you know, I was, um, I said, why is it that the people who are the most angry at me when I say anything about psychedelics are Christians? Why are we so upset? <laughs> all I said was, all I said was, if you're able, you should try it. And they get so angry. And then I posted pictures of the last supper with Jesus and they got so, I mean, I'm losing followers by the hundreds every day now they're getting so pissed, but it's such a dogmatic perspective. And, and yet, you know, there's nothing, they're not mutually exclusive. You can be curious and inquisitive Mm -hmm. and interested and, and um, also a, a person of faith. Yeah. You know, you can also be a religious person who has no spirituality you know, mm-hmm. you can just be stuck in the religious box, but not give a shit about actual humans. No, totally. So, for sure. Just being in the, in the, in the sort of righteousness of it versus the application of it. Well, and so yeah. if we want to look at the Bible, this is interesting because I, I was hosting a show about cannabis entrepreneurs some years back and never made it to air. It was a little too controversial. But the, the, the point is that there was uh, somebody that pointed to the Bible and there was a reference in the Bible about the, the plant of life. And so when you look at that scripture and you really look at it, like Rastafarians have, of course, they would look at it. Uh, and, and so Rastas have actually looked at that as, as a, an indication that cannabis is the plant of life. And so some of us look at plant medicine and, and don't look at it as an alternative to God. We look at it as actual a portal to being more like God. Yeah. And the response I was getting in my DMs is that, Christians, some Christians are afraid of it because they think that it opens up the portal for the devil to come in, you know, and that they could become possessed. And I'm like, okay, we just agree to disagree. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I agree to disagree, you know, because yeah, yeah. because at a certain point, like I can't, your worldview is, is frozen and I can't, I'm not going in this DM conversation. We're not going to change it. Just yeah. like, you know, with, with my uncle, who's a, who's a physician and he will, uh, he will, you know, he really wants me to get the, the second shot and he'll put a wall of like stats about the shot for me. And I'm like, I, I believe it all. And I still feel uncertain. And he's like, but the industry says, I'm just like, look, and we're not going to get through each other in that way. Yeah. Uh, Cause we're stuck. No, it's and, all about uh, having a better conversation then. Yeah. And I, I yeah. see Don has got to run and yeah. know we're winding down. Don. Does anybody any, yeah. have any other questions or comments? Matt? Yes. Oh, okay. Tomoko. Um, it's really not a question, but I'm in the same industry. So I really appreciate this conversation. And thank you for sharing your story because, you know, it's always self is the only enemy, not nothing or no one external. So it was very empowering to hear your story, uh, no matter what level, but you, you know, in going through life and different businesses, we all go through phases. So, uh, but I just wanted to, if it's okay, quickly introduce myself. My name is Tomoko and originally from Japan. I'm a singer-songwriter. 
I have a podcast called Songwriters Room, not only audio, but mainly on YouTube. And um, I have a Japanese series on TikTok. So I've been in these all my life. And uh, right now, like you pointed out, you know, if you're not really getting clients and making profits with all their platform, you know, you're you're not doing anything. But so I'm coming to that stage and I never had a mentor. I've been doing this all of myself and I really uh, I just wanted to connect with you and to thank you guys for this opportunity. That's all I want to say. Well, I'm so if glad I talk about if I talk about vaccines, uh, I am just really quick because it's going to be too long. But I was very anti and bef- after this conversation not because of this conversation but i've been getting this message i'm always open and flexible and i could change my opinions anytime be- only because i get message when i hear something or read something and i take it as a message and also i because i believe in parallel universes and i've been focusing on raising my vibration so i think what i'm i got the message from jesus that i should go get vaccinated and i'm going probably going after this zoom meeting and i would never thought i would say this but i think i i like to think that my world has shifted my universe has shifted where these uh, worst case scenario is not going to be there and where there's vaccines, just just vaccine <laughs> and all the all the bad stuff that I'm hearing, it's gonna be it's not gonna disappear because as long as we're on this earth, I I think oh it's always good and bad, light and darkness, juxtaposition. Yeah. So yeah, but yeah. Yeah, so this is where I'm at, but I'm not. Uh, I'm gonna just keep it well, short. I appreciate I appreciate what you said. I also want to make an amendment because you mentioned uh, something I'd said earlier about this idea that if if you're not converting your audience into clients, then it's like a pageant. I think I was, I was being a little reductive about the self-transformation that's also available. That's something I want to just make an amendment and sort of add a cherry on top, because I do think there's a lot to be said about what happens when we own our voice, what happens when we share our truth, when we share our story, even if it doesn't convert someone into a client for ourselves, (laughs) there's something powerful in that. So I just want to make sure that like, that's also a takeaway that even if it doesn't convert there might be a real catalytic effect internally for each of us in doing that. Thank you. Well said. Matt? Yeah. Um, I just wanted to jump back to basically how we were having the conversation about when people are like debating online or the fact that like everybody's posting something and it's so hardcore, like it's so hardcore on one side or the other. Oftentimes I'm not a keyboard warrior, but like you said, I'm, I'm at this dinner table and even though it's online in my head, I'm like, are you, Uh, And I just keep scrolling. I'm like, I don't even have the time to deal with this because, okay. But my my thoughts on that is that like when you're talking about it, like one, we do. We all have created our own bubble due to the algorithm. I'm constantly trying to adjust my bubble. Once I see my feed keep being the same thing, I'm like, okay, I need to start opening things that aren't what I would normally open so I can kind of get more. But without people doing that, and with the fact that we all have this, like, uh, we all have, like, so many logical fallacies that just we need to work on. And you were talking about, you you hit it. Like, I was about to type it in the chat, but you're like, it's just like when you're in a relationship and you need to go and speak with a therapist because you basically need to learn how to argue with each other. You need to learn how to debate with each other. You also need to learn how to accept when you're wrong 
And you also need to learn how to not shove it down their throat when they're when they're wrong. It's so much to it. And man, that's just two people who have been living together and are constantly going to, to therapy. So how, and I'm, I mean, this is kind of a loaded, huge question because my brain just explodes, but how can we possibly get anywhere close to like a singular mind? I mean, I, we'll never convert one person or this person or that person. How can we possibly get it to the point that we all have like intellectual arguments or at least our conversation overall as a society becomes a lot more intellectually based instead of such a blunt force, like just battle of just trying to be right. And you well, said it was part of you at your working lot, right? So yeah, yeah. And it's not, gotta have I, some mean, thoughts. <laughs> I mean, there's a whole organization around, you know, humane technology and, you know, this, uh, this, this documentary social dilemma is, is a really big breakthrough, I think, in the conversation because we, we are, we're all seeing the impact of it. So I think that's the first step is like really taking inventory on the impact of all of this and recognizing that we're all complicit on some level. So mm-hmm. we all have a responsibility. And so then within that, it's, it's actually resetting our intention. So is our intention when we go into the public square civility? and connection and understanding and building bridges or is it to feed our dopamine meter you know and be right and look good and all of that stuff that's the slippery slope that gets us in trouble so i think it really does come down to us not necessarily needing to have a singular mind where everybody agrees right and you know but but that at least we have a civility about the way we're engaging in the conversation at least there's a there's a baseline of respect that this individual that I'm looking at in this comment section is a human being, is someone that just by the virtue of them being a human being that is in the inquiry, in the conversation, deserves a certain amount of respect and and the benefit of the doubt, right? Right. So it's like, that's what I've I've constantly been checking myself on the past couple of years because I've, 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 (laughs) it's been a lot to have these conversations for the past two years as I've been having them about BLM, about Israel Palestine about vaccinations. I mean, I, you know, Daniel and I both share that that willingness to to, to be on the front lines. And it, I mean, it's it's been a very humbling experience. And it's like, are we willing to be humble? Because humility is not something that is generally celebrated in right. the current culture, but I think it ought to be. And that I think is the lever point. And so how do we get that delivered to the masses? And that's kind of what I meant by a singular mindset. Not that we all have to agree on one thing, but that we can all, at least on that mindset, treat each other all in the same way. That's more what I meant by the singular mindset. I don't want us all to, we don't all have to agree, but how well, do we and, deliver and that to yeah. get everybody to have that level of humility to well, be able to have an open conversation? I, I think it's a, it's a huge challenge for sure. Yeah. And, and I think that it, I, don't, I don't even know if it's exclusive to this particular generation. I don't think it's necessarily the algorithm that has us in our bubbles it's what's historically been the case as well. Sure. I think even before, I mean, you can think about your crazy uncle who didn't want to hear nothing at the barbecue about any other opinion than his own, right? It's like that. Right. that and the whole family just fell into the fact of, oh, that's just Uncle Arnold. That's just how he is. It's like, you guys, but we have to learn to say that's not just how he is. We have to tell him, cut it the hell out, dude. Like, that's not acceptable. You either need to leave or you can't come back next year. Like, stop. So, right. So in, yeah. in a lot of ways, it's like what we're talking about here on social media is no different than how we would want to approach Uncle Uncle Arnold at the barbecue. You know, it, it takes the same level of soft skills and mindfulness that it would to get through to Uncle Arnold that it will to get through to whoever's in your comment section being a kamikaze pilot, you know? Okay. 
I felt oddly specific about Uncle Arnold. <laughs> no offense, Uncle Arnold out there. Do you have an Uncle Arnold that shows up? I don't. I don't. Oh, no, not I do. Mine. I not mine. a couple of them. I, I literally think I just read that, actually, that one, um, talking about that and, and how we need to start approaching things in our family just because people are family doesn't mean we need to treat them just like that, and that's us. Okay. So. All right, guys. Uh, that's about all the time we have for today. Oh, is it? Well, well, Laura, yeah, come on. Oh, I was just going to say, I love this conversation. Like I came in a little bit late and I'm Canadian, so I feel extra proud to have got a chance to uh, meet you in person. We all like shared your celebrity. It was a big thing for Canada. So um, anyways, I just love this conversation. Like it's just so um, mind opening for me, but I do readings and what you're talking about mindfulness and media. And I've been all about teaching people to find their authentic self. Like we all have to let but I'm in my 50s, so there's a whole lot more to let go. But a lot of young people are very attracted to come to me. But what I wanted to share with all of you with this whole thing about engagement was something that happened last week. This guy that's the, into the storm. How do you say that? Q, Quantra? I don't know, whatever that. QAnon. I know QAnon. Yeah. Okay, so there's many people in the spiritual world because I'm sort of in that world. So I, I've heard it from many people I deeply respect this story that they're taking this adrenaline and all these things. So, and I have just, it pushed me into such a, for six months, do I even want to be in this world? Like, can I, do I want to be part of this spiritual world because they seem to be going cuckoo bananas. But then these people I really respected were saying this and I'm like, man, I really, I really like them. <laughs> right. And I came from a very extremist background. My dad was a union organizer. So I came from this very aggressive kind of thing. So I kind of had an aggressive stance against things until this point. So it was a very eye-opening thing for me. So this gentleman, I'm so coincidence, right? I, I do readings on the main street in my small town in Bracebridge, north of Toronto. And um, he comes, I'm coming to set up at my, at the shop and he's in the window looking at my crystals. So I'm like, hello. And he has a dog and he says, can my dog come for me? And he's like, you're not a witch, are you? And, and normally that might've made me react for something. And I'm like, well, what do you mean by that? You don't do that witchy stuff. And I'm like, well, if you mean I, I'm like, I don't do spells and that kind of stuff with you. I'm like, um, and he had a sound healing book in his hand. So I'm like, oh, you like sound healing. I'm, and I explained what an aura reading was. I'm like, I do aura readings. I want that. He said, I want that. I want one of those. So I'm like, okay, I need to set up. Do you want to go and come back? And so he goes and he comes back. I'm setting up and he sits down and he launches into the queue. Or I'm, I don't know. Again, I just don't know how to say it. And I was sitting there and the whole time I'm saying to myself, just breathe, Lori, just breathe, just breathe. Like there's a reason he's sitting across the table from you. There's a reason that this is happening. That's just what I kept repeating to myself. Like, don't be reactive, like stay really grounded. And, and then he took my, like, and he did. I was listening to him though. And I watched it unfold in front of me. I just listened to him. And then he would stop and he would go, well, I can see that you're interested. So I'm going to keep talking. So I think he was so used to being shut down and called crazy and that I was just sort of letting it unfold and saying, so I was so curious to do the reading because it's clairvoyant. I have my eyes closed and I see the energy and it blew my mind what I saw, right? Like I saw an ancient, a person in an ancient library being told to write something wrong, being told to tell lies. So he had a past life where this was part of his story, right? I saw an Egyptian past life that was telling him to be an architect and start planning and actually start planning his community, 
So I, I saw these things energetically. And then, and then when I do this, when I'm in that state, I'm just sort of saying, and it's a conversation and it, it's a flow. So I share this, like, I don't mean to share, break any confidentiality with him, but it was just in a way that I left it going, wow, wow. I would have never thought I'd do an energy reading on someone like that. And I see exactly what I see in everybody else, basically, right? There's some picture, but fear, fear is what was driving the thing against it like it's just this intense fear of what's going to happen and they just they really feel like they got to tell everybody yeah and there's so many of us all feeling that same way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it yeah, was just, I just otherwise i mean that's the thing it's like it, it's like this this idea of being spiritual yes and, what and, does and, it yeah and and i think it's really on full display that there there are there are a lot of challenges with any given worldview like yes. if, if there's an absolute then it's not an opening for possibility otherwise. So I would say that spirituality is actually being open to other worldviews. Exactly. And I think I learned that in that moment. Like I learned it in real time in that moment. And um, yeah, it was, it was just, I just thought, I just love this conversation. I, I, maybe we can do a longer one, Daniel, or something. Like this is really amazing. Or I've made you curious in your, what your thesis is too. If there's other information you can share with us about media oh. rehab. Oh yeah! If you want to go check out my TED talk, it's up oh, on okay. my my website. You could check it out at caduce.co. So q u d d u s dot co, or if you just go to YouTube, okay, you, can, you know, look look Thank up you. Caduce TED talk. Yeah, amazing. We're gonna build it out too. Cool. This is great. This is really good. This is this went uh, exactly as I thought it would. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This is great. Yeah, I really enjoyed the combo. Let's see. Kristen is here. Art's still here. Yasmin, Leslie, Tomoko, Kristen, Lori, Matt. Look, um, this is just part one of a longer conversation we're going to be having all year. You know, I think for me, big takeaway today was just like when we're navigating the space with all this different communications coming at us, staying grounded and not getting swept up in that pendulum, you know, of being tossed from one side of the spectrum to the other, kind of staying center. Mm-hmm. It's not always bad to be centered and literally in the middle yeah. because then you can hear from both sides. There are some things that QAnon says that I think, oh, you know, I'll close with also saying I was listening to a podcast the other day with Steve Bannon. And if you would have asked me five years ago, six years ago, if I would have been into Steve Bannon, I would have said, fuck that guy, hate him. And now I was like, yeah, okay, he's making some points. And if I'm so far left that I can't understand what he's saying, then I'm losing out. And even my great grandfather, he would, he was a, you know, hardcore liberal Democrat his whole life. And he would say, I listened to Rush Limbaugh because I want to know what the opposition is saying. Mm-hmm. You know, so he, he would, he would absolutely listen and he would consider the points. And I think that's what we should be doing, mm-hmm. you know, giving people that and also giving them the grace as well to like, to make mistakes and correct themselves if they have to. Um, mm-hmm. So thank you guys for spending time with us tonight. Uh, the slightly edited version of this will come out uh, as a podcast. We look forward to connecting with Caduce uh, later off the air. I'll send out links to all of his stuff. And uh, Caduce, anything else you want to say before we close out? I'm grateful for you, man. This is a great combo. Really yeah. appreciate it. I always enjoy talking with you. You know, I think we, that's the thing that I appreciate the most is the way that you're able to explore these really dense, difficult subjects with the level of thoughtfulness and and humor too. I mean, can we have a little fun with all of this shit? You know, like, I mean, is life to be suffered through or can we actually laugh at ourselves a little bit? So it was great to laugh a little bit. That too. And uh, I recommend that you start writing your book now, sir. Ah, yeah. I've got too many thoughts in this head. Got to get it on paper. (laughs) Yep. Yep. All right, guys. Much love. 
I'll see everyone later. I'll talk to you soon. Peace. Peace. Good night, everyone. Great work. That's all we have for today, folks. I hope you loved listening to that episode as much as I loved recording it for you. And honestly, Caduce is the man. He has so much to offer. He's an absolute master when it comes to media. So I highly recommend that you follow him on Instagram at Caduce, Q-U-D-D-U-S. And of course, his website, Caduce.co. I've actually gone through one of his programs that's taught me how to show up on camera much more powerfully, and I can't recommend it enough. And of course, if you're not following me on socials, make sure you do the same. It's the same on all handles, at Daniel DiPiazza. And if you want all the latest information on what we're dropping, including my insiders list, make sure you check out alphamentorship.com. So that's all we have for today, guys. Remember, the water is warm, the tide is rising. So jump in. It's time to surf the new wave.